The first time I caught a grizzly was 25 years ago. As you'd suspect, it's rather difficult. You see, I've been obsessed with bears since August 23rd, 1987, the day I chased a tranquilized black bear through a garbage dump in New Hampshire. I was working with a biologist who was studying the bears in the area. I was 18. The date sticks with me. I think about it all the time because before that day, before that surreal and unexpected experience, I was all set to become a graphic designer. College plans, the whole lot. But that bear changed something inside me and and totally shifted my whole perspective on what I was here to do. Catching a black bear was one thing, but I came to realise that this was just the beginning, training ground for the things to come. Catching a grizzly bear? Oh boy, that was something else altogether. This is the story of one man and one animal, a biologist and a bear, and me and the most terrifying job I've ever had. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. It's 1994 in the Canadian Rockies, and I'm a nervous 24-year-old, standing between two well-armed men. It's like a scene from a heist movie. We're here to catch a grizzly bear. A few grizzly bears, if possible. It immediately sounds crazy that there's a job like this, to catch grizzly bears, but I was with a man who had that job, Ian Ross, a wildlife biologist who'd become legendary in the bear world for his almost innate ability to catch grizzly bears for scientific research. He was working on the Eastern Slopes Grizzly Bear Project, and this was a cutting-edge effort to understand how grizzlies can survive in what's quickly becoming a human-dominated region. Tracking them, collecting their DNA, learning from the bears, and here I was, I was with Ian on his team. I'd landed a job, like my dream job, and I was about to learn from the master. Ian was about the most stoic guy you could imagine. Calm, mild-mannered, and in control of his every movement and emotion. Kind of like Clint Eastwood in a spaghetti western. Very chilled, but with his glint in his eye and a dry wit you could never see coming. First time we met was at a firing range, part of an official safety training course before going into action. And I was a bit wet behind the ears. I I think Ian felt like he'd got the short straw. I was this exuberant young Brit who was probably more of a liability than an asset. I remember him looking at me curiously, like he was examining some kind of strange animal. Are you ready for this, Chris? He asked. And he told me that catching a grizzly is basically weeks of tedium interspersed with moments of absolute terror. I was totally ready. The only way to really understand grizzly bears, especially back then, 25 years ago, was to follow them and learn about their lives. But but how to do that was the dilemma. They can have home ranges that are hundreds of square miles in size in some really wild country. Radio collars were the answer, and getting a radio collar on a bear was something I was here to master by learning from the master.
On the first day, Ian, a conservation officer named Dave, and I headed out in the pickup truck. The smell of the truck was the first thing that hit me. It was just rank, almost overwhelming. And the task was to find a good place to set our capture gear somewhere a grizzly bear might pass through. I remember as we jumped off the truck, Ian handed me a rope and he told me to hold on tight. And he pulled the truck away and the ropes unraveling in my hand. And when the rope got tight, a dead beaver slopped out of the back of the pickup truck onto the ground. Like, I could see Ian smiling in his rearview mirror. This was our bait. And I felt a bit like bait too. I was the gullible Englishman who had to drag the beaver carcass up the hill to create a scent trail. A great plan, because a grizzly bear sees the world through his nose. Their sense of smell is about ten times better than a bloodhound. So the first thing to do is create a scent trail with a stinky beaver carcass right up to the door of our cubby. Now, the cubby is where it all happens. It's basically a bunch of logs all piled together in a triangle shape for the grizzly bear to walk into. About four feet wide at the entrance, at the doorway, this entrance you place a foot snare. A humane system, it doesn't hurt the bear. It's, it's a quarter-inch aircraft cable that you attach to the anchor tree at the entrance, and then the other end creates a loop for the bear to step into. The snare cable's then attached to a metal foot treadle and a big spring the size of your forearm. And when the bear steps onto the treadle, it releases the spring and throws the cable up onto the forearm of the bear, hopefully attaching him to the anchor tree for us to then come in and tranquilize and put on a radio collar. And the beaver carcass? We strap that to a tree at the back of the cubby. If anything brings in a hungry grizzly, it's a stinky dead beaver. Setting a snare is more of an art than a science, and it's where I started to learn how to really think like a bear. You have to lay moss on the snare to hide it, and then you push small, sharp twigs into the ground to guide the bear's paw into just the right 12-inch hole where he'll step into the snare. The last thing we did at every site was shove a branch in the ground with a, a bit of orange flagging tape on the end of it, about six feet high. So if a bear did walk in and ended up being snared, he'd knock this flagpole down, which would then let us know from a safe distance if we'd got a bear or not. After we set the trap up, we left. I was so excited to see if this would really work, to see if we really could catch a grizzly. The next day we came back. No bear. We came back the next day, and the day after that, still no bear. This is where the weeks of tedium begin. Every day we headed out on quads or in the truck to check the capture sites, and we had about six of them set in different areas of the forest. And every day we'd go through the same routine. You know, I'd have Ian on one side and Dave on the other, one with a shotgun and one with a rifle, just in case. And we all had bear pepper sprays on our belts. And it was my job to check with binoculars to see if that flagpole was still up. Yep, flagpole, up, no bear. And then we'd move in on foot to check the traps to see if anything had been poking around. Or if the snare had been tripped and needed resetting. And it was tense. It was always tense. A grizzly can run 35 miles per hour and that's as fast as a racehorse. And they don't like being approached or cornered. So we walk into this one site, same as every other single day. The ribbon flagpole is up and the stick is still in the ground. Check with my binoculars. Nope, 
No grizzly bear. So we walk up, kind of casually, but still looking carefully as we approach, though. And I'm thinking, what would be different today to the previous three weeks, you know? We get to within 20 feet of the cubby. And boom! Suddenly, out of nowhere, this bear just barrels out of a hole in the ground, and it's right at us, like in a nanosecond. Talk about life flashing before your eyes. This is it. It's all over, I thought, you know. This guy's covered in mud, and I'm reaching for my bear spray, and I can't grab it. And we all take a step back like we were shoved in the chest. And right then, the bear rolls like into a somersault. He's been tugged back by the cable. He's attached. Thank God. So now I'm reaching for my binoculars because I need a close-up of his wrist to to make sure that the cable is on there and not just on his toes. Because if it's on his toes, he could break free and be on us. I'm shaking like a leaf, trying to hold my binoculars to my eyes to see if he's got this snare around his wrist. And as I do, the bear backs up to give himself some room. And he reaches the end of the cable and then comes barreling at us again. He's huffing and charging, and he does it over and over again, like at super speed. Every time he's tugged back by the cable around his forearm and charging at us, he's pissed. My heart, you know, my heart rate's through the roof. I mean, it is now just telling this story. And then I see the cable, and it is, it's on his wrist, it's secure. And I'm, I look over at Ian, I'm panting at this point, and Ian just looks at me calmly and says, sure beats a cup of coffee. And I'm like, I just my pants. It's like weeks of tedium interspersed with moments of absolute terror. I was a wreck, but I had never felt so alive in my life. We backed away. We were all pretty wound up and and we didn't want to stress the bear. And so Ian darted the bear with a tranquilizer rifle. And five minutes later, it was the most tranquil scene. And I had my hands on a live Rocky Mountain grizzly bear. He was covered in mud but I could see he had a beautiful thick coat and his giant paws. I just remember these huge paws with long white claws and looking down into the big hole he'd dug in the ground, like he'd been hiding from us in it. I could just picture him wiping camo onto his face, waiting for us to arrive. We were with him as he slept for an hour. What a life this grizzly bear was leading. Every day, out in the wild, like like something from the ancient past out doing his thing every day. We put the radio collar on the bear, give him a shot of antibiotic, take some DNA blood samples, and I monitor the rectal temperature, another job for the new guy, of course. (laughs) And then we weigh him. We hoist him up off the ground over a small log, 350 pounds, a good-sized bear, and he's in great health. Then we remove the cable, get him all comfortable, and leave him alone to wake up quietly. We named him Dawson, after the small creek nearby. Dawson the grizzly bear. I had no idea what he would mean to me in in the years to come. For the next two seasons, I tracked Dawson and a dozen or so other grizzly bears through the Canadian Rockies on foot, following the signals from the radio collars, like breadcrumbs into another world, teaching us where they go, what they eat, where they mate, and, and what they need to survive. I hiked 2,000 miles over those two years, and they were two of the best years of my life. Dawson and other bears taught me a lot. It was a window into the wild, and I was in total awe. Experiences like that, I think, are where some solid buddies emerge. 
Ian and I had become great friends. He even met my parents. I remember one evening them totally wide-eyed around a campfire in grizzly bear country, listening to him recite The Cremation of Sam McGee, the ten-minute poem by Robert Service. I went on to work on other projects in different parts of the world and in every place using what Dawson had taught me, and Ian too. Then one day, about eight years later, Ian calls me up. He was on another project in the Rockies where he needed to capture more grizzlies. He wanted me to be on the team. So, of course, I jumped all over the chance to work with Ian again. The band was back together. So out we went, you know the score, weeks of tedium interspersed with moments of absolute terror. Every day, shoulder to shoulder, flagpole up, no bear, until this one day. We walked into the trap site and everything was quiet, got closer and closer, when suddenly this giant bear leaps out of a hole all covered in mud and charges at us, somersaults over. I mean, he's huge, bigger than any bear I'd seen at that point. I look over at Ian, who's almost as surprised as I am at this, this point, and he smiles and just says, sure beats a cup of coffee. We tranquilized the bear, put a collar on him, weighed him 650 pounds, enormous for a bear in this part of the world, and such an amazing thing to see up close, a grizzly that big. We finished up and left him in peace, and I honestly didn't think much more about it. A month later, back at home, and I get a call from Ian. You know the big old bear we caught? Yeah. Ian tells me they ran the DNA, and you'll never guess who it was. Dawson. I was blown away. It was Dawson, eight years later, and he was almost double the weight. The first time we caught him, he was 350 pounds, and the second time, 650 pounds. Dawson was alive. He was like the king of the hill. He'd managed to get across the highways and the railroads and avoid trouble on the golf courses and get around this busy world of humans. And not only that, he was still teaching us what it takes to be a grizzly. He became an amazing grizzly bear success story to me. A year after we caught Dawson for the second time, I got a call that was one of the toughest I've ever received. Ian had been killed in a plane crash. He was tracking lions in Africa and it hit me hard. I'd I'd heard from him just days before, loving life and living to understand the animals he loved. And right away I thought of Dawson. I'm so grateful that Dawson brought me to Ian and that Ian brought me to Dawson for those incredible experiences together. I think about them both almost every day and how they both shaped everything I do. And I know that somewhere in those rocky mountains are Dawson's descendants roaming their wilderness thanks to the people like Ian who set out to save them. We have a photo of a much younger me and Dawson the Grizzly on Instagram. Check us out at The Wild Pod. On the next episode of The Wild, we head to Germany to look for wolves. I've got to be really quiet. <laughs>
some covert operation. We just met someone in the woods here. And he's taken us to a secret spot where we can sit and wait for wolves. There's something distinctly dodgy about this whole setup. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. There's a ton of information on the website if you want to find out more. KUOW.org slash The Wild. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Brendan Sweeney is our managing producer. Our fact checker is April Craig. And thanks to David Brown, who helps engineer our show. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. We had additional music from Lee Rosevear. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening.